When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins. This is Shirley Manson. This is Low Tallest, co-founder of The Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. To keep the music flowing, we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one. So check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Spark Parade, where I geek out with artists and entertainers about the cultural works that sparked their inspiration. I'm Adam Ons at Spark Parade on all social media. Thanks so much for joining me. Uh, coming up on today's show is my chat with singer-songwriter and Pine Grove frontman Evan Stevens-Hall about the inspiration he's drawn from Kazuo Ishiguro's much-revered novel The Remains of the Day. It's a really fun and interesting chat, if I do say so myself. Evan is a really great guy, and we are both big fans of this book, so we have lots to talk about. We touch on English repression, something that gives me a chance to once again announce to my guest that I'm a British citizen. That never gets old, does it? Anyway, uh, we talked about societal norms and expectations and how they can stifle us, the bittersweetness of unrequited love, and Nazis. Because no conversation is complete without a little Nazi talk thrown in, right? But seriously, it's a great chat, so let's get straight to it, eh? Uh, quick Evan facts. Evan Stevens-Hall is a singer-songwriter and musician who's best known as the frontman of indie rock band Pinegrove. In January of 2021, the band released Amperland NY, a dual live album and film that reimagines songs throughout the group's discography, recorded live at Amperland House in Kinderhook, New York. The accompanying film, directed by Kenna Hines, is adapted from a surreal short story by Evan, with the band acting out tall tales. Okay, quick Remains of the Day facts. The Remains of the Day is a novel by the Nobel Prize-winning British author Kazuo Ishiguro, published in 1989. The protagonist, Stevens, is a butler with a long record of service at Darlington Hall, a stately home near Oxford, England. In 1956, he takes a road trip to visit a former colleague named Miss Kenton and reminisces about events at Darlington Hall in the 1920s and 1930s. Remains of the Day received the Man Booker Prize for Fiction in 1989, a film adaptation of the novel made in 1993 and starring Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson was nominated for eight Academy Awards. So there you have it. You are fully up to speed. Forewarned is forearmed and all that. And now, here comes my chat with Evan Stevens-Hall about Remains of the Day. So, do you remember reading Remains of the Day for the first time or, or becoming aware of it? Um, like, how, how did you get turned on to it? Yeah. Okay. So I was staying at my manager's house, um, who lives in Bristol, England. Uh, mm. Kazuo Ishiguro is a British author. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, my manager is a reader, uh, just like me. <laughs> and, um, I was looking for a book to read. I had always wanted to try, try his work out. And actually the, the, the very first work I read by Ishiguro was, um, the unconsoled 
Mm. Uh, and then I worked, I worked back. Well, it, I think uh, Remains of the Day was maybe the third Ishiguro I read. Uh, but, but at that point, it was the most powerful for me. Um, and that was just last year. I think, I think I read five books by Ishiguro last year. So it was, it was, a, it was a banner year for reading <laughs> in general. And uh, it, I was so happy to discover this, this author that I just, I loved the aesthetic of, I loved the politics of. Um, it just really spoke to me. Yeah. Um, and I, I find his writing so delicate and so specific and so um, subtle. It, it, the, like the the attention to detail, subtle. That's right. Moving through the story, introducing new concepts and new characters in a way that's like you almost don't notice that it's happening. And especially in this book, just just such a, right. a a sensitivity. Um, and, and, uh, that combined with his use of language is, uh, is really incredible. Yeah. Um, I completely agree. I, I think that a lot of his, his project, if not, you know, his, his, uh, total aesthetic priority is the slow and patient and, uh, sneaky and subtle, mm -hmm. uh, d d um, revealing of information, um, he just, uh, he seems to be really concerned with, uh, bringing us from a vague place into a place of knowledge. Hmm. Yeah. And, um, which by the way, that whole project, I feel like is undermined by the book jacket, which, <laughs> which talks about, uh, well, and we, we should be clear for the audience, I think if we have, if we're going to discuss this book, we have to be prepared to talk about spoilers. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, because kind of the the central thing of this book um, is the question of fascism, of ethno nationalism, and um, our our main character's complicity in that. But we don't get there until like page one twenty or mm -hmm. something. Yeah, um, it's it's really deep in the book. Um, so <laughs> permission to talk about spoilers? <laughs> uh, absolutely. I think, you know, especially with books that are, you know, whatever, 30 odd years old, I, I think anybody who hasn't read it by now can expect a few spoilers. So, um, yeah, right. fr free reign to talk about uh, anything in the book. Yeah. But I was so surprised that, and, and it's not just this book by Ishiguro, but, but like, you know, Never Let Me Go. Mm -hmm. Uh, also on the book jacket mentions that they're clones, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's like completely subverts the tension of, of the first half of the book where the reader is not supposed to know. Totally. Yeah. Um, so, th so that's pretty wild to me, but, um, yeah, maybe that makes him kind of unique. It's, it's tough to summarize what his work's about without just saying it. And yet, I mean, that's, that's his mastery that he can kind of talk about this thing without even coming close to saying it and often saying the opposite. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, okay. So, so let's, let's talk about S Stevens a little bit. The, just the main character of this book, mm -hmm. he's, he's our guide. He is a butler and he's just kind of speaking to the reader actually as if the reader is a butler. Like there are certain assumptions like that you're familiar with the trends in butlery throughout mm -hmm. the 20th century. And certainly you won't disagree uh, that, uh, you know, Mr. Fields and Mr. or whatever their names are, are the, the major butlers of the early 20th century. <laughs> right, right. You know, like, like the reader's supposed to have an informed opinion about that. So 
Yeah, he's extremely serious, extremely literal. The loyalty to his boss is unquestioned, uh, Lord Darlington. Mm -hmm. um, and he is pathologically repressed. He, he doesn't seem to be willing to admit uh, at all what's going on around him as Lord Darlington gets sucked deeper and deeper into Nazi sympathy. Mm -hmm. and uh and he's also totally repressed about his feelings for miss kenton who's uh his co-worker yeah so we have we have a book i i think that that's maybe centrally about repression or mm -hmm. suppression or or self-denial yeah and i think the two themes the kind of shadow of um uh looming f fascism um and uh, repression are interlinked because it's about how that repression affects your ability to intervene when you see somebody being sort of uh, sucked into fascist ideas. And, you know, I think it's that balance between his uh, duty as a butler, you know, this is his, his entire life is dedicated to this. He doesn't have a personal life. He doesn't speak to anyone about anything that is right. uh, in any way talking out of turn. You know, the most casual conversations that he has are still very formal. So yeah, think, thinking about how that tremendous pressure influences his behavior and his ability to interact with other people on the most casual of issues, much less on the one of the biggest issues, if not the biggest issue of the time. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so that actually brings up a great point, I think, about um, uh, what it means to be isolated with your opinions and like how, how important it is to triangulate your worldview with other people, mm -hmm. which he just doesn't do. I mean, ex well, except for I mean, he gets pushback from Miss Kenton when uh, he's been he's been directed by Lord Darlington to let go a couple of employees who are Jewish mm -hmm. be because of their Jewishness. Right. And Miss um, Kenton, you know, does an outrage if you if you do this, I'm going to quit. But then, <laughs> then she doesn't. But 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 it's not because of uh, you know it, it's not because she doesn't have commitment to her values, but really just because she has nowhere else to go. Right. And that's kind of a, that's a really real situation too. Yeah. I've heard, um, I've heard, I've heard Ishiguro talk about how it's not, it's not so much the evils that people commit, but what evil people are willing to passively tolerate. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be to, it's a more relevant question because most of us don't have a lot of power in this world. Mm. Um, and you know, I think people are more and more are, are aware of ways to collectively build power. Um, and people are interested in trying to do that. But I think it speaks to a real helplessness that a lot of people feel about leadership, about government. Right. So that's that's I'm, that's one of the things that really spoke to me. Yeah. Um. The the getting back to that point that you were making about isolation, I always feel like in a way, first person narratives are almost science fiction. It's a, it's a it's a perspective that doesn't really exist outside of your own head. Even you know reading somebody's diary doesn't give you access to their most private thoughts and to their whole internal life. And this whole narrative is is told from that perspective like it's mr stevens right and he he's not even really you know you can tell that he's not even really <laughs> able to be completely honest with himself because his justification for dismissing these jewish employees 
is about saying, you know, this is his duty, this is his job. It's not his place to say, uh, to push back right. against any of these ideas or the reasoning behind it. It's just like, you know, this is what he needs to do. And so there's that side of it. But then also from Mrs. Kenton's uh, perspective, not only thinking about the idea of uh, w- what's uh, appropriate um, or the, the best way to push back against, you know, the the, the biggest evil, but drawing from some of the other issues in the book, like class, sexism, and especially for this time period, saying Mrs. Kenton not only doesn't have anywhere else to go because, you know, she has very little family. And at that time, I don't think she has any family and her aunt has died. And for a woman in that time period, if she is unmarried, the work options would be something similar to being a maid in this house. This is kind of kind of one of the, the better jobs that she could get. And if she leaves this job on bad terms, she's not going to have a reference. She's not going to be able to find anywhere else to work. And just thinking about how even in contemporary society, people don't have that that kind of leverage many times in their work to be able to speak freely because if they lose their job, it can ruin their life. That, that's totally right. Um, there, the book raises a lot of questions about agency and you know what corners we are are forced into, but also the corners that we paint ourselves into. Mm. Um, and I, I I think you're you know you're right to say that the the whole book is kind of propelled by that first person narration where. Well, this is one of the really brilliant things about the book. It kind of teaches you how to read it. Mm. So there are, by the end, you understand that when Stevens is talking about, you know, if, if, if he says, Miss Kenton and I, uh, you know, briefly exchanged some, uh, you know, some things somewhat outside the professional register. Mm-hmm. You know, he'll he'll like qualify it on every level. You know, like it was a brief conversation. It was somewhat outside. Then we know that this was something that was actually really emotionally impactful mm-hmm. and, you know, something that he's maybe not willing to admit to the reader. And, and so, yeah, by, by the end of the book, you start to think, um, okay, most of what Stephen says is defensive or a rationalization for some... Uh, you know, absurd fealty to his sense of dignity or, yeah, well, it's, yeah, dignity, composure, loyalty. I mean, it, he goes, he talks a lot about what dignity is. That's kind of a central question for him. Like, how, how do we f- define what a great butler is? Must they be attached to a great house? You know, is it just a question of socioeconomics or is the lordship of the house committed to doing something other than playing golf every day. Right. And then also saying how that uh, idea is this nebulous thing that changes over time. And, you know, when the the new owner takes over, who's this like, you know, American who doesn't have the pedigree of the previous owner and, you know, from a British perspective is like this, you know, brash, uh, kind of crass, nouveau riche monstrosity that would never be considered by the, you know, the whatever the uh, secret but- butler organization is called. Oh, they, they would never oh, yeah, consider yeah, the him Hayes to be. Society. <laughs> right, right. Um, yeah. And worse of all he's expected to banter with him he's still he he, oh man that whole thing i i loved his he's like well you know well what's the skill that i'm supposed to learn uh you know and he's studying it you know as if it's something he can really i don't know get better at i i 
I'm speaking as somebody who's not particularly good at it. So part of me hopes that you can get better at it, but, <laughs> right. but his like, you know, highly literal commitment to like, he's practicing looking at things in his environment and <laughs> trying to think of, think of three quips every day right. just for himself, just to practice. Right, right. And those moments as well. I mean, I guess, you know, there's this whole side of this character that's very much about professionalism and dedication to his his craft. Um, but there's also that particular brand of repression is not unique to butlers in England. Um, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm, right, I'm a... Right. I'm a British citizen. I'm, I'm married to an English person. Um, I, I lived in the UK for uh, a dozen years. And, um, you know, there's like Twitter feeds dedicated to like things that British people worry about. And, you know, this idea of like a British person on a bus uh, pressing the button to stop the bus at the wrong stop and just getting off because of the embarrassment of having pressed the button <laughs> right. at the wrong stop is, is much worse than having to walk an extra 10 blocks. And yes. all of the things that he does are like, I was like laughing hysterically. It's like things that I recognize in my husband, <laughs> frankly. Um, you know, this idea of just getting so stressed out when he stays at... Um, uh, a, a house, uh, you know, the, the the house with the couple in um, on his his journey, and right. he says something in the pub that he thinks the man might interpret as an insult to his wife, and spends the night <laughs> right. agonizing the whole night, about yeah. it. That <laughs> right. shit is so real. That is like a, the the British mind to a T. And so there's so many of those things that it's like cultural stuff bleeding into it as well. And obviously he's a very extreme case of that kind of repression. But um, I think in addition to having repression be kind of a character in this story, Britishness and British identity yes. is is uh, is also a really strong theme. Absolutely. And I think there's an interesting kind of meta context to this too. Um, Ishiguro grows up in England, um, but in a household that speaks Japanese, his parents, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, are, uh, the story he tells is one where his parents the whole time kind of treat their citizenship of Britain as a kind of temporary thing. Mm. And so uh, they wanted to raise him uh, with an understanding and sensitivity to Japanese culture and a knowledge of the Japanese language within the household uh, just in case they move back so he won't uh, feel totally foreign there. But at the same time, he is speaking English outside the household. You know, he's otherwise, you know, he's British. And um, and so I think that kind of, du you know, bilingual, bicultural upbringing is pretty interesting, given especially that his first two novels are set in Japan. Hmm. And actually the one right before this, an, an artist of the floating world, also deals with a man at the end of his life looking back and realizing that he was kind of sucked into nationalist craze. He's a painter and has dedicated a lot of his creative life to um, making what amounts upon reflection to nothing more than propaganda. And so I think that deep immersion in, in two cultures that, were on opposing sides in World War II, mm -hmm. um, really have made that a, a like very fraught and very fertile territory creatively for him. Right. But um, a lot of the reviews of the first two, but especially the second novel, kind of treated it as an insider's look on Japan, like kind of a 
anthropological guide. Like if, if a, a, a non-Japanese reader wanted to read this book, they would find out so much about Japan when in fact, really it's a book about consciousness that, mm. and repression and, uh, and art and, you know, what it means to be a human being that happens to be set in Japan that is not even, uh, you know, it has no particular commitment to, to truth uh, in that regard. And so I think that the remains of the day in a lot of ways is, is a response to that frankly kind of racist misunderstanding Mm. of his work Mm -hmm. early on. And so he does the most British thing possible almost as a parody of, you know, maybe himself, maybe the culture, but in any case really speaks with a lot of authority about this kind of classically British archetype that, as you say, just brilliantly speaks to um, the broader qualities of emotional repression in the culture. Right. And I think um, another interesting thing is that those two cultures, British and Japanese, if you take them uh, at face value, you you wouldn't necessarily think of them as similar cultures. They're, you know, very, um, very different in their traditions and in in many, many different aspects. But if you take that Venn diagram of those two cultures, the overlap is repression. And, um, you know, this idea of a public face, the way that you present yourself in society um, when you're out in the world, when you're at work, having very specific rules of etiquette and the ways that that interacts with class and sex, uh, gender, mm-hmm. all, all of those things. And and also this uh, the way that romance is dealt with and uh, sexuality and mm. um, all of that stuff, too. It's 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 so fascinating. And like I was saying at the beginning, it's so it's so delicately handled everything the the subtlety with which he writes and expresses these ideas is is just incredible. And I think, you know, I don't want to go on too much about the movie, but the um, the movie is really well made. One of the things that I think was really lacking and that is very difficult to convey on film because so much of it is about a first person narrative, yeah. um, uh, you know, conveying this kind of uh, internal turmoil and uh, the specifics of his repression. But in the movie, it's like from the second the meetings start happening at this house, it's like, Nazi, 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 Nazi. <laughs> and that's not the way, you know, the, the, in the book, yeah. it's like you, you're only, you slowly start to realize what's going on in this, you know, it, it unfolds in a really slow, subtle way um, that I think is a really, really important part of the story. Yes. Great point. Uh, it, it's so gradual. And I think it raises an interesting question about, okay, so going back to like whether in Stevens's perspective, it matters uh, whether his lordship is committed to an attempt to improve the world or, you know, just a life of recreation and comfort. Lord Darlington seems sincerely duped. You know, he, like, it's really thoroughly described that, like, well, what is it? So he, he, he has issues with the Treaty of Versailles, mm-hmm. um, that it continues to punish Germany after World War I in a way that he considers uh, ungentlemanly. And so it's really framed as a gesture of compassion that he wants to make more connections with German leadership and seems to be motivated by good intentions, Mm -hmm. uh, as clearly blind as he's been. And so that raises, I think, just such an interesting question about 
I mean, what can we possibly do besides try our best? And what happens to, to people who have committed their lives to a cause that they, they believe is noble and yet um, at the end of their lives realize that they've just been, you know, th- their whole framing has been wrong. Or, mm. you, you know, so, some crucial question about, about how they, you know, about what they've committed themselves to. And I, I, in a way, like an artist of the floating world, which is not what we're focusing on, but but these are these are kind of twin novels, kind of. And in a way, that question is more persuasively asked because this is from the perspective of someone whose entire country was, you know, obviously there were dissenters then, uh, but but the the momentum of the country was, you know, in support of the emperor, and it was apparently the right thing to do to support the cause to support you know the people you love and here too because stevens has intentionally kept distance uh and just like you know like he has a a personal definition of what his role is supposed to be so he just implicitly trusts lord darlington and i don't know there's something that that's really real about that and like you know it it very subtly asks the question, the book does, the remains of the day, that is, uh, asks the question, what happens when you try your best and you still fail? Right. And and also, I think the idea of power and influence as intoxicants, as as, yes. as a lure. And I think it might be uh, a bit too harsh to call Lord Darlington a useful idiot, but it's it's that, you know, he is so tantalized by being the the focal point of these negotiations and, and the attention that he gets from the Germans. And, you know, they, they treat him like he is this very, very important, valued uh, member of these negotiations. And it's because he has this influence. He's a way into British society and uh, he can attract, you know, the, the, the most powerful people in Britain to these meetings. And so he's being used. And I think that kind of clouds his judgment. And, you know, you do, uh, eventually he, he feels this incredible remorse for having fired these Jewish employees and tries to, you know, much too late, tries to make it right. So it gives you this idea that he doesn't necessarily subscribe to these ideas. He is just wrapped up in the, the romance of being a, a powerful person. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's really well put. Um, and one of the really subtle and powerful ways that Ishiguro uh, conveys that is like he'll he'll kind of repeat scenes, like in a way. So so I'm thinking of um, I'm thinking of the conference that Lord Darlington holds mm-hmm. uh, with. M. Dupont, the the yeah. uh, influential Frenchman, and then the American senator. Um, who gets completely roasted and called out for his like duplicitous ways. The senator has apparently been trying to leverage his influence in kind of a double agent type mm. capacity. And uh, DuPont calls him out in front of the entire conference. And so we're in that moment, in, in that iteration of it, of of uh of Stevens's memory of it, which is important. I, I think you know it's it's all mediated by Stevens's own defensive and repressive memory. But we're supposed to see the American senator as the bad guy in that moment. But then at the end, 
when you, the journalist, the young Cardinal, mm-hmm. <laughs> the, yeah, the yeah, Cardinal yeah. Jr. or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, w- when he retells the story with the American as the only sane person in this room who's who's trying to, uh, you know, in effect, stand up against fascism, it does bring into question the, I don't know, like ethical relativity, basically, right. uh, of it. And that is just such an amazing thing to be able to do as an artist is to show both ways and to make the reader sympathetic to opposing viewpoints at different points in the novel. And I think a lot of that has to do with just the, I guess, ironic distance or uh, dramatic irony, I guess you would call it, where the reader understands something beyond what apparently the narrator is aware of right um and and that that's just propels the whole i mean it makes this book beautiful it makes it what it is yeah yeah and uh, like uh, also just again talking about power and influence that reporter saying to stevens like oh we've been friends for for such a long time and sit down with me and let's have a chat when it's all this contrivance it's about getting information out of him it's about furthering his own goals and there's elements of that with all characters it's like everybody is figuring uh, trying to use their station in the best way possible to maintain or further their career sometimes at great personal expense or moral expense. And yeah, it's just, you know, another layer of complexity, all of these issues of how people organize their lives and how they prioritize all of these different issues and what the price is for maybe prioritizing the wrong thing at the wrong time. Yeah. Yeah. Right. What what are those consequences? And it's a question of consequence that actually makes me think that the title of the book, The Remains of the Day, is a really um, interesting choice because it's framed at the end as kind of like, okay, so maybe you spent decades and decades dedicated to the wrong thing, but you're still alive. What can what can you still do to make this right? Or at least, you know, to, to live out your life with, you know, whatever your new conception of dignity is. But... I think we have to question that conclusion of Stevens because he kind of has no credibility. (laughs) Like his extreme aversion to introspection just Mm. makes that kind of hollow. Cause it's like, I, I don't know if, if you're, if you're confronting things you've done wrong in your life and you've, um, you know, really dedicated time to introspection and um, to, you know, actionable improvement, that's one thing. But to just say, ah, well, all you can do is look forward. Like, there's something a little bit disingenuous about that. Right. Um, but, which makes the title so brilliant, I think, because because it really lives on the shifting sands of the whole texture of the book. Yeah. And it's really just like, who who do you, when you take stock of your life, when, when you're ready to retire, when you're, you know, uh, when all is said and done... Do you want to be able to look back at your life and be proud and thinking about the sum total of your decisions and not just living in the moment, not just prioritizing your career and being able to have that introspection and analyze your decisions holistically based on, um, you know, every every element of your life and how all of those things 
interlink and being able to prioritize different things at different times. Um, So yeah, it was such a, like a really moving ending. I think that just introducing that concept at the end brings up all of those ideas. And again, in such a simple, subtle way that it's like this kind of offhand comment that a stranger makes to him um, at the end of his, his journey. And, um, yeah, it was it just just really kind of took my breath away. Oh man, yeah, I uh, so I I reread the book um, in the last two days for just you know to keep it fresh in my mind, mm. which was I would uh, that would probably be the quickest I've reread a book <laughs> after initially reading it because I, I I just read it maybe I don't know five months ago maybe less. What is time? <laughs> yeah, <These days. laughs> just an endlessly weird dilation. Wouldn't, no landmarks (laughs) to punctuate anything. But yeah, but so uh, that's all to say I knew what was going to happen. And yet at that moment when Miss Kenton reveals that she had feelings for him all along Mm -hmm. and he admits, he says, well, why should I not say it? My heart was breaking. Right. And it's just like, oh my God, that it just, it punctures the whole veil Mm -hmm. of, of his repression just for that one crucial moment. And that was such an effective, well, effect. And such restraint by Ishiguro too. Like there's almost nothing that's said completely directly except in that moment. Right. And you just feel it. It's it's just so honest. Yeah. Wow. Um, This has uh, uh, been... Absolutely fantastic. I think that's a really lovely note to finish on. You've been very generous with your time here, so I don't want to uh, keep you keep you too much longer. But um, oh, not at all, Adam. Thanks for the conversation. Yeah, this, this has great. been this has been really brilliant, um, and uh, I, I really appreciate you making time for me. Oh, and, and you for me. Thanks for having me <laughs> on the show. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. Thank you very much. Take care. Cool. All right. Bye. 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 That was so much fun. Thank you to Evan for chatting with me. Both the Amberland NY album and film are available to stream and download right now, so you should do it, don't you think? I do. And I'm always right. Okay. The moment you've all been waiting for, my artistic inspiration of the week, I watched In and of Itself on Hulu this week, which is a filmed version of writer, performer, and magician Derek Delgadio's off-Broadway one-man show. Um, you just kind of have to experience it for yourself. It's kind of indescribable. It's sort of a magic show. It's sort of a biographical one-man show. Uh, I found it really emotional, uh, strangely emotional, and I, I absolutely loved it. I have some friends who saw the live version in New York, and they said that the film is even better because it compiles bits and pieces from a lot of different performances, so you get to see a broad range of audience reactions. Um, so check that out on Hulu if you're in the States, or uh, figure out some other way to watch it if you're not helpful for people in other countries, right? You're welcome. Okay, Uh, that's it for this week. Back next week for more. In the meantime, be good, eat your vegetables, stay safe, and until next time, bye.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.